calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. You're listening to The Pocket and the Pendant by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael and Evo's Dragon Page and Podiobooks.com. The full book is available in Podiobook format at Podiobooks.com. The full print version is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Lulu.com, or from the book's website and blog at www. Dot pocket and pendant dot com. Ten, the tale of Anki. The children settled in as the flames licked and roared in the fireplace. Anki adjusted himself in his seat. He was just a dark silhouette against the fire perfect for the telling of a story. So now, I will tell you my tale. This is a tale of the very ancient world. Indeed, it is a tale of the very beginning of your world. But at that very moment, they were interrupted. A door opened in the wall, and a strange short man with a black pointed beard appeared. He was wearing a midnight black suit and a black turban. He nodded a stiff greeting to the children, and then approached Enki and whispered in his ear. Enki hissed something back to the man, something imperative. The short man nodded briskly and then disappeared into the door in the wall again. Your pardon, that was the white magician. Max and Ian exchanged puzzled glances. Uh, You mean the black magician, Max said. No, I mean the white magician. But, Max felt almost stupid pointing this out. He was wearing all black. Yes, I know, Enki replied, and then kept talking as though this were perfectly natural. My isle is not impervious from care. There are always a hundred thousand things in motion which I must watch and attend to, and the white magician is presently watching all of them on my behalf. But we still have a little time left, and my story will prepare you for Jadith, and for ridding the world of the pocket and the pendant for good. It is a tale of the first time, at the end of the dream time itself. The sea crashed against the isle in a deafening roar as if in agreement. Parts of my tale you will no doubt recognize as familiar. You will have heard a version of it, but many details have been lost or garbled with time, so most of what you will hear will be entirely new to you. It is also the tale of a struggle between two brothers, both sons of a king, It is the tale of the conflict between my brother Enlil and myself. 
Here Enki paused and looked down at the ground for a moment, lost in his own thoughts. He sighed and shifted slightly in his seat, and then resumed speaking. I want you to try to imagine a time before writing, before the sowing of crops, before anything at all that you have come to know even existed. Enki paused again, apparently thinking how best to explain this to the children, and then continued. The earth in that age was a primitive place, wild, raw, beautiful, savage, and untamed. It was essentially a planet-wide garden, or jungle. Your myths preserve a memory of this time. You have a collective memory of it, the Garden of Eden, if you will. Humans did not yet exist, although there were already plants, fish, and animals in abundance. Life was rich and varied and flourished everywhere across the face of the Earth. When we first explored the solar system and discovered Earth, we quickly realized that Earth's life had been seeded by life from Nibiru billions of years previously. We knew that Earth had originally been part of a different, much larger world, one covered completely by an ocean. The Sumerians called this proto-world Tiamat, and it originally occupied an orbit between Mars and Jupiter. But several billion years ago, the orbits of Nibiru and Tiamat crossed. The collision was, of course, cataclysmic. Tiamat was cloven in two. Half became pulverized and the debris became the asteroid field, which remains to this day in orbit between Mars and Jupiter. They hammered out bracelet, as the Sumerians called it, in the night sky. But the other half of Tiamat became a new smaller world and was thrown into a new orbit between Mars and Venus. This new world was, of course, the Earth as you know it. And we realized that the collision of the two worlds had allowed primordial life to jump from Nibiru to Earth. Because of this, life on Earth was much like life on Nibiru, and both were therefore compatible. They both sprang from the same root, they both used the same code of life. We could eat the fruits of the Earth, for example, or the flesh of its animals. At first, it seemed extraordinary and miraculous that chance should have produced such a world in our own solar system. But of course, there is no such thing as chance, no such thing as coincidence. How else could it be when we are the ones dreaming the universe? We delighted to no end in studying this curious sister planet, teeming with a life that was a wild offshoot of our own for a long while. But sooner or later we had our fill, as it is with all such things eventually. Our wonderment and astonishment waned, and for nearly half a million years we did not return to Earth at all. And then, something happened on our Nibiru, which was to alter the destiny of both our worlds forever. Nibiru is protected by a naturally occurring atmospheric shield, similar to Earth's ozone layer. But Nibiru's shield is much, much denser and thicker, and is made almost entirely of suspended particles of fine gold that swaddle Nibiru in a thick, glittering cloud. In fact, Nibiru appears as a ring-golden planet from space, this golden atmospheric shield is what makes life on Nibiru possible, as it keeps radiation out and heat in. Without it, all life on our world would perish. It came to pass that there was a terrible accident on Nibiru. It is from the deep mines of our world that we recover the jewels of the Dreamtime, the Umphalos that you have seen with your own eyes. These stones are not found on Earth, as your world is too young. Only in the deeps of a world as immensely ancient as Nibiru do such gems lie, taking their dense, crystalline form when the universe was still young in the dreamtime. 
Indeed, it was from these same mines that the Kranenamakan itself came forth. Likewise, all manner of whispering stones, the singular eye, and the jewels that make sky chambers possible. One day, a portentous Omphalos was unearthed in our northern ice cap. It surprised and astonished us greatly, for it was fiercely white, yet simultaneously filled with a yawning void. It was the first time that we beheld darkness in the core of a gem, though at the time we did not even comprehend that that's what it was. We did not know that the Dreamtime could contain such things in it. We named this Omphalos the Chthonic Stone. There is much to the tale of this particular jewel, for it has a history of its own through the ages on our world. But for this telling, suffice to say that it was once unleashed in a war. You should know that there have been very few wars on our world. Even killing for us is rare. Niberians are slow to anger, never impulsive. But when we do become angry, it is on an epic scale. It is with a passionate fury, monumental and slow to cool. In fact, our rigidly hierarchical society is meant to contain the furious onslaught of these arcing passions when they do occur. But on this occasion, our much-vaunted social structure failed utterly. War was unleashed. The Chthonic Stone burned our world to a cinder, and the golden shield layer of Nibiru was entirely consumed. Enki bowed his head for a moment as though the memory were too much for him, but in a moment he continued. Our entire planetary climate was altered. Heat escaped into space. Deadly radiation seeped in. Crops turned to dust. Our animals became sick and died. Our people withered. Most of Nibiru's vast orbit is spent far, far away from the warm yellow sun. Our world is heated primarily by its fiery planetary core. And without either sun or golden shield to keep the heat contained within, our planet quickly grew cold. An ice age unlike anything ever seen on Earth gripped our world. Glaciers and ice sheets clung to our continents. Frost and bitter winter beyond anything in the experience of your world clawed into the very bones of our lands. In short, we had really gone and put our foot in it this time, as Ian might say. So my father, Anu, the king of Nibiru, called for a plan. The problem was that we needed to replenish the gold in the shield layer but the sheer volume of gold required to repair the atmosphere of an entire planet was staggering. Yet we had no choice. It was either we succeed, or our world and all in it would certainly perish. We tirelessly mined our planet dry of gold, and still we had barely made a dent in repairing the shield layer. We were desperate. We needed another source of gold. And then, quite by accident, we discovered that your world, the Earth, was full of gold. The war I spoke of had been between Anu, my father, and Alalu, who at the time was the king of Nibiru. When it was over, Alalu was overthrown and exiled to Earth. In those days, your world occasionally served as a kind of penal colony for Nibiru. When Alalu first arrived on his prison planet of Earth, he cast about seeking for ways to sustain his life, and he came upon the ancient sea. And there... On his knees in the sand as the waves crashed over his arms, he saw a whole sea thickly saturated with gold. True, he was in exile and had every reason to be bitter, but he also had no desire to see his kin or homeworld destroyed. He called out to Nibiru with a whispering stone and told them of the sea of gold. And so we came. We saw that it was true, this tale of a sea of gold. 
and Anu sent me to the seventh planet, for that is what Earth is to us, counting from the outside of the solar system in, to mine the Sea of Gold. Sixty of us came at first. We landed in the sea, splashing down in what is now the Persian Gulf, and came ashore in the lands between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Ah, what a sight that was when we stepped out onto the shores of your world for the very first time. The raw, green, wild and woolly lands of the earth, untouched, untamed. Our ships sank beneath the waves behind us, while we, made taller, stronger and denser by the heavier gravity of Nibiru, a world four times as large as the earth, strode as bold gods onto the shores of a new world. Did I say bold? I should also say it was terrifying in many ways that it would be hard for a human to imagine. For example, just the mere sight of the night sky on Earth, thick with stars like smudged jewels against the velvety blackness, was extremely frightening to a Nuburian. On Nibiru, there is always a thick cloud cover ever-present overhead in the sky. One never sees the stars from the ground, only when one is in space. But not on Earth. The stars are right there overhead and it was initially hard for any of us to escape the irrational fear that at any moment we would fall off the face of the spinning earth and be thrown into space. And so it was that I, Enki, was appointed the first ruler of earth by my father, Anu. Upon that shore we established the first city which we called Iridu, that is home in the far away, the land called Shinar, or ancient Sumeria, and we began to distill gold from the sea and ship it back to Nibiru. But very quickly, we saw there was a problem. The gold was not as easy to extract from your sea as we first believed it to be. Our yields were far less than we had hoped. The problem was that we did not have much experience with a sea like yours, as there is no sea to speak of on Nibiru, and we underestimated the complexity of separating the gold from the waters. My father, Anu, was not pleased and grew impatient with my failure. He decided to send another to rule the earth in my stead, and to run the gold mining operation, one whom he believed was more level-headed, if perhaps not as inventive and innovative as I was, and who sent my older brother, Enlil. And so it was that Enlil and six hundred more Nuberians came to the seventh planet. Immediately, Enlil abandoned the plan to obtain gold from the sea, and began to mine it directly by delving it out of the earth itself. And Enlil took the rulership of earth from me when he arrived, as our father had wished. Now, Enlil did not outwardly gloat, but I knew that he had been secretly incensed that our father Anu had initially chosen me, instead of him, the eldest son, to rule Earth in the first place. He had seethed with jealousy and humiliation when I had been appointed. And so, now, Enlil viewed his ascendancy to the rulership of Earth, and my demotion, as the writing of a great wrong that had been done to him. Now, things were finally as they should have been all along. Enlil was absolutely delighted by this turn of events, although he never showed it. I knew he was secretly dancing on the inside. For my part, I was despondent over my loss of rulership for reasons of pride. And yet, truth be told, I was also quite relieved to be rid of my duties as ruler. To me, being ruler was basically one bit of administrivia and tedium after another. Terribly boring tasks to be performed out of necessity and love for Nibiru but certainly not enjoyable. Enlil, on the other hand, positively flowered in the job. He could just not get enough of issuing edicts, inspecting quotas, and reporting tallies. He relished in the ordering of things, the putting and keeping of things in their place. 
finding these things immensely comforting and satisfying. So, if the truth be told, Enlil really was the one for the ruler job anyway, annoying little pinhead that he was. With Enlil now firmly entrenched, I was free to spend more of my days exploring as I had wanted to do since arriving. I traveled here and there in my sky chamber, studying the life on Earth, and what I found astonished me more and more the deeper I delved into it. While I was engrossed in this project of mine, those of our people who toiled endlessly in the mines began to sour on their lot in life. Who could blame them? They spent years and years digging gold out of some dark hole in the ground, drudgery upon drudgery. Someone had to do it. Nibiru's survival depended on it. Yet, the price was harsh and it fell sorely on a few shoulders. So it was, eventually, that the miners rebelled. In the middle of the night, the miners rose up and marched on the house of Enlil, murder burning in their hearts. Let us break the yoke, they shouted. Let us kill Enlil. But calmer heads prevailed upon the miners not to slay Enlil. After all, he was the firstborn of their ruler, Anu. So they finally agreed, but they would not allow Enlil to leave his house. Enlil, of course, was furious, pacing around like a sleepless, caged animal, imprisoned in his own home. Six hundred murderous Nuburians were howling for his blood, right outside his own house. It was intolerable. At first, Enlil threatened to have the leader of this rebellion put to death, and punish those who did not return to work in the mines immediately. But the hollow, gaunt, and determined look in the eyes of those who had spent so many years deep down in the pits of the earth told me that things would quickly go very bad if Enlil did this. So I prevailed upon Enlil to reach out to Anu, our father, and let him decide what was to be done. Anu, surprisingly, sided with the workers. Once he heard their lamentations, he took pity on them, despite the desperate situation on Nibiru. He asked that another way be found which did not require exacting such harsh punishment of the workers. Enlil did not know what to do. He was sleepless and irritated, feeling that he was now in an impossible situation. How could he deliver on his appointed charge to deliver the monstrous quantities of gold required to save Nibiru, without any workers? It was in that moment that I gained the courage to speak of an idea I had been contemplating for some time, an idea that under normal circumstances would have never been entertained by our people, but now seemed the only way to accomplish our task. And so I summoned all to a council at Enlil's table to tell them of my idea. What if a primitive worker could be created who would mine the gold for us? They were all dumbfounded, not understanding what I was on about. Where would you get such a worker, Enki? they asked me. Such a worker already exists, I replied. All that is left for us to do is to bind our image and likeness upon it. For in my travels about the ancient earth, I had seen many animals and plants and other forms of life which had clearly grown from the same seed of life as that of Nibiru. The same basic structure, the code of life, had both sprung from the same root. On earth, apes and other primates roamed the savannas of Africa, and although they were a long way off from naturally evolving into intelligent beings, they were far enough along that I believed that it was possible to modify them, to upgrade them, if you will, into the very primitive workers we required. I proposed that the source material for upgrading the earth primates 
would be our very own genetics. It would be a gene splice. We would mix in just enough of it to give them the ability for rudimentary reasoning, speech and strength to work in the minds. They would not be our equals by any stretch of the imagination, but they would understand simple verbal commands and have a primitive kind of intelligence. They would be able to grip the pickaxe. They would be able to delve in the mines. They would be able to sow the crops of the land. Enlil's eyes widened as he realized that I had given him a way out of his impossible dilemma. The miners were ecstatic at the prospect of being freed of their labor at last. And I was personally delighted, intrigued by the possibilities of what I was about to attempt. It was only in a moment of crisis where such a radical thing as what I was proposing would have been considered at all. So it was that Enlil and our father Anu granted me leave to try. And a cry of hope rose up among the Nuberians who worked the mines, which is preserved in the Atrahasis, a Sumerian poem. Create a primitive worker, let him bear the yoke, let the worker carry the toil of the gods. And from the Enuma Elish, the Sumerian creation story, let me put blood together and make bones too. Let me set up primeval man. The work of the gods shall be imposed upon him, and so they shall be at leisure. Another Nubarian, a woman named Ninti, who shared my enthusiasm for the wonderment of what we were going to try, joined me and together we departed for the jungles of Africa. Ninti was really the genius with genetics, the code of life, and the secrets of how the double helix coiled energy from the dream time into information that caused material beings to be. There, in Africa, we settled in to study the primates further and decide which species was best suited for our plan and to begin our work in earnest. Ah, Ninti was among the most beautiful and stunning of Nuberian women. She was lovely and brilliant beyond measure. We were very much in love in those heady days, and our task was a wonderful one, and I relished the time we spent together. For long years, Ninti and I toiled in the Abzu, the name of the land where our African laboratory was, and Endel impatiently awaited the results of our efforts. It took some time and many missteps along the way, and there are tales I could tell of those days that would fill several sittings. But in the end, we did succeed. We successfully designed a crossbreed, a mixed creature, combining elements of an earth primate and a Nuberian. I personally was the Nuberian DNA donor. My own code of life was combined with that of the earth primates in a clay bowl and brought to term by Ninti herself. When the mixed creature was born, Ninti shouted, I have created, my hands have made it. And with that, the first man whom we named Adapa in the original Sumerian was created. Now, Adapa was not fully human in the same way you are. He was what you would call today a Neanderthal man, that is, more than an ape, but less than a true human. And because the first man did not naturally evolve, but was deliberately created from an earth primate, your scientists have been unable to find a missing link between humans and apes. There simply isn't one to find. Nuburians are a very fair-haired, fair-skinned people. We are almost albino in our natural state, in fact. Our world doesn't get much sun orbiting at the fringes of the solar system. Therefore, Adapa, a mixed creature, was a kind of revelation to us. His hair was dark brown, and his skin bronze and tanned. To our eyes, his hair was unusually dark, and we found that initially shocking. Hence, 
Adapa and his kind ever after him were named by us the Black-Headed People, which is how Nuberians refer to humans even unto this day. In ancient Sumerian tablets, your scholars have discovered that this is even the term by which the Sumerians refer to themselves. Ninti and I returned and presented Adapa to Enlil and the others, and needless to say, he got rave reviews, as you might say today. The miners were overjoyed. Here was their deliverance standing right in front of them. For his part, Adapa was frightened out of his wits, as you might imagine. I remember him standing there, naked before Enlil on his throne, with a court of beings he regarded as gods assembled in the great hall, staring, speaking, pointing, and whispering. I stood close to Adapa and whispered reassurances to him that everything was all right. I was there. There was nothing to worry about. I would protect him. Yet it was a sore trial for a creature like Adapa to endure. The only gods he had known up until then were Ninti and myself, and we had both been very kind to him. Now there was literally a mob of hundreds of gods, all gawking and speaking fast and incomprehensibly, sounding to Adapa's ears as a great din, and Adapa shook badly with fright while I quietly told him how proud I was of him for handling it so bravely. And really, he did. But Enlil's eyes burned with a mute fascination as he stared coldly at Adapa. On the one hand, he was fearful of this new being, this mixed creature. Adapa terrified and offended Enlil on some basic level by just existing. Adapa was unnatural, a thing that had been made and should never have been in Enlil's narrow little mind. Enlil loathed anything out of its place or change of any kind, and Adapa embodied all these things rolled into one. Something deep and terrible awoke inside Enlil that day. I saw it in his eyes, as he looked at Dapa up and down, but not think much of it until years later, when I realized that the seed planted that fateful day had grown and festered, and finally given rise to Enlil's later unspeakable loathing and hatred of all mankind. On the other hand, Enlil was enormously relieved that I had given him a solution to his impossible dilemma. His brief rulership of Earth had almost been brought to an abrupt and ignominious end. He had been teetering over the abyss of horrendous failure, something that would have been impossible for Enlil to ever live down. And with the introduction of Adapa, I had just saved him. So, for a short time, the rift between Enlil and myself was healed. We were brothers again. Enlil promptly ordered the mass production of primitive workers. Now, there, we had a bit of a problem. Like all cross-species mixes, the first humans could not have children. They were sterile the same way a mule is sterile. So each primitive worker had to be individually created and brought to term by a Nuberian birth mother. Once each was born and grew up, they were sent to labor in the mines. To the black-headed ones, to give the pickaxe to hold, is another line from the Atrahasis. Now, the black-headed people then were not of the same intelligence that humans are today by a long shot. When mankind was first created, they knew not the eating of bread, they knew not the dressing of garments, ate plants with their mouth like sheep, drank water from the ditch. In fact, the very nature of their consciousness was extraordinarily different from yours today. This was by design. One of the many strictures laid upon Ninti and I by Anu and Enlil was that these primitive workers were to be wholly unable to challenge us in any way. There was a secret fear in the hearts of my very conservative people that one day, the primitive workers might rise up against us, 
especially if they had enough numbers and learned enough of our secrets. Therefore, I was to limit the comprehension and abilities of the black-headed people. I was to give bounds to their reasoning, their intelligence. And this I obeyed. The key to everything is words, as I have said. Therefore, the key to limiting the black-headed people's abilities and thinking was to limit their words. And this I did in two ways. First, I engineered the language centers in their brains such that the only words they knew or could ever know, they were born already knowing. The language known today as Sumerian was hardwired directly into their brains as instinct. In much the same way, the fowl of a horse is born with the knowledge of how to walk and is running within hours of birth. So the first of the black-headed people were born knowing how to speak and were in fact talking within hours of their birth. Second, the first humans could only understand new tasks when we gave them the instructions in Sumerian. The inborn language was rigid, primitive, not open to invention. The black-headed ones could conceive of no new thoughts other than those which we gave them as a sequence of instructions using the inborn language. This is why Sumerian is a mysterious language to your modern linguists. There are no human languages descended from it, none whatsoever, which is unheard of. All human languages, without exception, other than Sumerian, have ancestor tongues and descendant tongues. Sumerian is the only language which stands entirely alone, isolated linguistically. This is because it is the root language, the first tongue of the black-headed people. It's machine language, Ian blurted out, his intuition jumping. Sumerian is a kind of human machine language, right? Very good, Ian. That is exactly correct. What's machine language? Max asked. Oh, in a computer, Ian answered excitedly, the chips and circuits are hardwired with a language they understand directly, in ones and zeros. It's called machine language. You can write programs in it, but it's limited. It's not very powerful or elegant. So Sumerian is like this machine language? Max asked. But in people? Yes, Anki replied and as you soon will see, more like it than you might imagine. So what happened? Max asked. It isn't like that now. I mean, we're not speaking Sumerian right now, right? Anki laughed. No, of course not. One thing at a time, Max. I'll get there. Let me continue my tale. So before long, there were hundreds of black-headed people working and toiling in our service. And what could they regard us as other than gods? They knew we created them. They saw us work incomprehensible magic before their eyes. We ascended to the heavens and descended from the clouds in chariots of fire. Our ways were clearly above their ways. They were our slaves, and we were their gods. And the gold flowed. The plan was working. The gold yields were supremely impressive, and the natural shield layer on Nibiru showed clear signs of improvement. We were finally succeeding in nursing our world back to health. Nibiru crosses near Earth's orbit once every 3,600 years. During this time, it appears in Earth's skies as a bright golden star. Our world began to resemble a shiny, ringed golden ball once again, instead of the drab, dead gray orb it had been for so long. Since the golden shield layer is highly reflective of sunlight, as Nibiru healed it shone brighter and brighter in the Earth's sky with each crossing. As we looked up and beheld this, we could not help but smile. 
With each crossing, we took advantage of the orbital proximity of our homeworld to ship the largest volumes of gold and to visit. Anu himself even came to Earth. We went to Nibiru, and for a time, all was quite well indeed. And then, then I went and did something rather rash. Enki bowed his head for a moment. Not that I'm sorry. I'd do the same thing again if I had it to do over. Two things began to unfold simultaneously before me. The first was that Enlil became more and more agitated with the black-headed people. Oddly enough, this was because the plan had worked, because Nibiru was well on the way to being healed. Like most alliances made in a time of distress, once the common enemy is defeated, old bitterness dormant while the fight was underway suddenly resurfaces once it has been won. So it was with Enlil's loathing of the black-headed people. Now that Nibiru had been saved, his hatred was back with a vengeance. Enlil bitterly resented that it was these Enki-created things that got the credit for what he thought should have been his triumph. The Niberian people whispered that it had been Enki's wits and inventiveness in devising and creating the primitive workers that had saved Nibiru, not Enlil's masterful administration of Earth or something along those lines. Unfortunately, this did not gel well with Enlil's self-image. He wanted desperately to believe that it had been he who had saved Nibiru in its darkest hour. How could Enki have stolen all the credit? He, Enlil, was ruler of the Earth, not Enki. And so, Enlil hated me, and the black-headed ones anew for this. The second was that the black-headed people longed for children of their own. Their lives were hard, after all. They were slaves. Would it be too much to ask for this one consolation? Even the beasts had as much. Were they not more than beasts? And truth be told, it had been them, really, that had saved Nibiru, not I. It had been their back-breaking labor. They had paid the price. As I watched their hardship in the dark tunnels, their toil in the fields, their labors in our kitchens and cities, finally, as I heard their lamentation for children of their own, I could bear it no more. The responsibility was mine. I was the author of their condition. I had to act. And so, in secret, I prepared a gift. An upgrade for the black-headed people. Ian would call it a patch, like for software. It was magic food, this gift, this information as food. Similar to the magic food Ian's friend Sweetlid unfortunately encountered in the book, this food I speak of now in my tale was created with the same principle. Only this food was an inordinately more complex bit of word magic. This was a work of art, of genius. Carefully, ever so carefully, Ninti and I wove the word magic together in secret. For we had learned much since our early clumsy forays in creating the black-headed ones. Remember, at this point it was now hundreds of thousands of years later, and we were now very certain of what we were doing. We had become virtuosos. This magic food was designed to rewrite the code of life of the black-headed ones, to complete the truncated energy bonds of the hybridized DNA, to seal the gaps. It was, as you may have guessed, an apple. But before we continue, a moment if you please. The word Nahash means he who solves secrets in both Sumerian and Egyptian. One of my epitaphs says Thoth is he who solves secrets. 
Now, Nahash was mistranslated as serpent in the rather garbled and patchwork version of the story that has come down to you through the ages. The Sumerians told it to the Egyptians, who in turn told it to the Hebrews. Like a game of telephone, it changed a lot in the telling. And I must say, I am rather unhappy about how I have been memorialized in the version of the tale that has survived. Enki sniffed indignantly. This was evidently an old wound for him. It was I who gave the gift of the magic food to the black-headed ones. When they ate of it, they were instantly changed, upgraded on the spot. The energy packed in the magic food twirling right down to their genetics, such that they could now have children. There were other changes in their knowing that went with such newly acquired abilities, of course. For the first time, the black-headed ones desired to wear clothes, to know the dressing of garments. But by giving the black-headed ones this gift... I had directly violated the order given to me to limit the comprehension and abilities of the black-headed people. I had, in fact, given them a new and wholly unauthorized ability. The power to multiply on their own, to become an independent race. When my people discovered what I had done, they were terrified. For the black-headed ones bred far more quickly than we did. They might attain sufficient numbers to overthrow us. What then if they also ate of the plant of life? A chorus of my people said, Behold, the man has become one of us, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. When news of this reached Enlil's ears, he was beyond enraged. Of course, I had known it would be a risk, that it would probably anger him, but I thought in the end it would simply blow over. I was wrong. Instead, Enlil had me bound in chains a rare thing for one Nuberian to do to another, let alone to a brother and the son of a king, and he had me arrested and thrown down before him. The downcast gazes and the silence of the others told me that I had in fact gone far, far over the line, and for the first time, I was truly scared. What have you done to us, Enki? He howled in my face. These creatures, these slaves, were never meant to be a race unto themselves. I had deeply offended all of my conservative kind with this one act. What could I say? I loved the black-headed ones as my own children. I could not simply leave them as they were. Things to be used by us and then discarded? No, they were better than that. Our own blood ran in their veins. They had saved us. They were our brothers and sisters, not our slaves. I think you forget yourself, Enki, Enlil replied, voice shaking and dripping with hate. Now these creatures will multiply and multiply and multiply, a great surging mass of them, myriads upon myriads of them. Like a noisome swarm of locusts, they will blot out the face of the earth until nothing is left but dust. And in less than an eye-blink by our reckoning, when they have finished with this world and have learned the secrets of friding the skies, will they then come to ours? Will they come to Nibiru itself? Where will it end? Do you not even care about who you are? Enlil hissed. That you are the son of Anu, lord of Nibiru? He only said this because he knew that I did not. I had no love for the severe hierarchy and rigid control structures of my kind. And as Anu's son, I had a very good position in life, which many coveted. And in his view, I had simply squandered it. Enlil eyed me and weighed seriously whether he might be able to get away with killing me right there on the spot. But in the end, he knew that Anu would have punished and perhaps even killed him if he did. So instead, Enlil had me banished. 
I was dragged away to the peak of the tallest mountain, chained to a rock, and left there to linger in hunger, cold, thirst, and torment for a very, very long time. Enki's face suddenly turned dark, and his mouth twitched and crinkled at the memory. But only for a moment, and then he continued his tale. Meanwhile, in time, the sons of Nibiru began to find the daughters of the black-headed ones beautiful and married them. Thus were born the men of renown, heroes of old. They were part mortal man, part Nubirian. You've heard of some of these demigods, no doubt. Achilles, Sargon of Akkad, Hercules, Gilgamesh, Alexander the Great. They also became the first kings of Sumeria and the first pharaohs of Egypt. But Enlil was absolutely enraged by this trend. He found it revolting that any of his kind would want to marry one of the black-headed ones. In secret, he seethed and fumed over it. Yet still, I was not done disobeying my kind. For the sake of the true freedom that I love so much, still I was not content. You have heard, no doubt, of the ancient city of Babylon. What you probably do not know is the actual meaning of that name. Bab-Ali, in the original Sumerian, literally means the gateway of the gods. And this is exactly what it was. Babylon was the place where we came and went in sky chambers to Nibiru. Like an airport, Casey said. Yes, a spaceport, actually. My firstborn son, whom history recalls as the Egyptian god, Amun-Ra, and somewhat lesser by his Sumerian name, Marduk, was much more ambitious and craving of power than ever I was. But he also inherited my independent spirit, my love of true freedom. Thus he did not covet the throne of Nibiru as he might have otherwise. Instead, his ambition channeled into a wish to establish his own kingdom, right here on Earth. And control of Earth in those days meant control of the spaceport. It was the vital link with Nibiru. It was our railroad, if you will. Control it, and you had control of the supply chains. But instead of trying to take Babali by force, Amon-Ra conceived a bold new plan to create an alternate gateway of the gods. There would be two spaceports, he reasoned. One that he, Amon-Ra, would control, and the other would remain under Enlil's control. Thus Enlil could no longer monopolize the supply chains. Enlil would be forced to share dominion of the Earth with Amon-Ra. To put his plan into effect, Amon-Ra also did something no one had ever thought of doing before. He allied himself with the black-headed ones. This was an unthinkable thought previously. Black-headed ones were talking animals, even still to most Nibirians. To ally with them was to view them as semi-equals, actually worthy of alliance. It was something Amon-Ra only thought of in the first place because he was my son. So Amon-Ra made a pact with a half-human, half-Nibirian king, Nimrod, and his legions of mortal humans. On the plains of Shinar, Amon-Ra said to them, Come, let us bake bricks and build a tower. For ancient sky chambers required a launch tower much like your spacecraft today. Thus, the key feature of an operational spaceport was thus a tower, meant to reach unto the heavens. And so they began to build the Tower of Babali, known better to you today as the Tower of Babel. Amun-Ra's rebellion was swiftly crushed by Enlil, and the alternate tower destroyed. Amun-Ra was punished terribly as I had been. Enlil succeeded in maintaining his monopoly on the road to Nibiru, and thus retained his mastery of Earth. But in the process, Enlil was taught a new fear, one that drenched him to the bone. 
Enlil was utterly terrified now that a legion of black-headed ones had come close to actually challenging his power. In fact, before this incident, he would not have even thought it possible. So again I was brought before Enlil. Of course, it hadn't helped that it had been my own son who had started the rebellion. Enlil raged at me anew. This is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Enlil understood all too clearly that a common language had been what had given Amun-Ra the ability to organize humans and to create the tower in the first place. So he ordered me to confuse their speech. I was made to swear an oath that I would do so. And this I did. We descended on the black-headed ones, saying, Let us go down and confuse their language. But in secret, unknown to the others, I conceived to give humans more than I took from them, while concealing this from Enlil, who understood nothing of the Dreamtime or books or anything. Specifically, I did this by creating a program, a tablet of word magic, written in the inborn language of the black-headed ones. It was the antidote to the rigidity of the inborn language itself. It was, in short, a description of how to create new languages, new grammars. It was the seed of all languages which followed. You created a boot program out of human machine language, Ian marveled. Exactly, Ian replied, impressed that Ian had grasped the thought. When the black-headed ones heard these words, they couldn't help themselves. Their minds immediately began inventing new languages. The human psyche was originally designed to be susceptible to suggestion. They were slaves, after all, designed to accept verbal commands from us in the inborn language. So, I gave them a command to start making new languages. I told them exactly how to do so, and commanded them to use the new languages from now on instead of the inborn tongue. In the blink of an eye, the inborn tongue was lost, and a multitude of new languages unleashed. It altered the very consciousness of the black-headed ones, widening their vision in a shocking jump of sudden clarity. Notice, if you will, that ancient written languages are pictographic, one drawing represents one idea or word. There were no letters. The scribes had to learn tens of thousands of individual symbols to write anything at all. But this was indicative of how the inborn language actually worked, the intent behind its design. We wanted to keep the black-headed ones boxed in conceptually. But after the Tower of Babel, humans jumped from pictographs to written letters and alphabets. Now they had an extremely compact and dynamic language that could grow accommodate new ideas. For example, English has only 26 letters, yet everything from Shakespeare to the Sunday news comes from it. This is an astonishing accomplishment when you think about it. This in turn unleashed a much wider range of possibility of thought. It freed mankind from his conceptual shackles. Much like higher order programming languages are able to do far more than machine language, the new human languages, Egyptian, Greek, and so forth, were likewise far more powerful conceptually than the original inborn tongue. Thus, you saw the flowering of philosophy, mathematics, architecture, civilization bursting forth upon the ancient world with a startling suddenness unexplained by your scholars today. Humans had now inherited the gift of true words. I had given them something far more powerful than fire. Enki stopped and laughed to himself. Now, this was not at all what Enlil or the rest of my kind observed. They did not comprehend what I had wrought. Even now, the story of the Tower of Babel is one of confusion, 
disempowerment rather than empowerment. For the immediate observable effect of this boot program was that humans no longer understood the original inborn speech. Men for days afterwards shouted at each other endlessly without comprehension, gibberish and more gibberish. The initial result was chaos, confusion, only because no one had learned each other's speech yet. I therefore kept my oath to Enlil. When he saw the incomprehension which gripped the black-headed ones, he chuckled to himself with delight and contentment. But over time, this gift of words made arts of a magnitude unheard of available to men. It made books possible. It freed humans conceptually from slavery and let them tap into the very dream time itself. For intent and thought are the keys to the dream time, and words are the tools for shaping and sharpening thought. I had even managed to keep my oath to Enlil in the process. For were not the black-headed ones bereft of their common tongue, just as he had commanded? Enki chuckled with delight at his ancient, epic-scale joke. Yet even still, Enlil worried and fretted. He paced in his palace, tormented by the thought of another revolt of the black-headed ones. Darker and darker thoughts roiled in his mind. He became obsessed. And finally, in secret, he summoned me one last time. Drunk now, and in the grip of an exceedingly black mood, we had a discussion which was never recorded. There is no Sumerian, Greek, or Egyptian legend of this meeting, or what transpired. It was totally off the record, as you would say today. Enlil demanded a final oath of me. He wanted an off-switch for the black-headed ones, some way to kill them all at a moment's notice. I was horrified. Over a period of several hours I appeased and complimented him greatly, and I delicately talked him out of that particular request. Yet, still, he would not let go of the idea of a device, an artifact to control them all. If he could not kill them, he wanted a way to take away their free will, a way to make them completely and utterly obedient at the snap of his fingers. In the end, he would settle for nothing less. If I could not or would not provide such an artifact, he would wipe them all out. He would kill all of the black-headed ones right now. And I believed him. Enla was more than capable of such an act. He would burn this world clean of them once and for all. I found I could not back him off this position, try as I might. He stubbornly refused. He had already compromised, he said. He railed against me. No, my brother, he said. You will give me this one thing I ask for, or I will have them all destroyed tonight. So you see, Casey, I truly had no choice, as I said. And so I began work in earnest on the pendant. True to my oath, I forged the very artifact I had promised, a device capable of nullifying the power of free will. The pendant complete, I then informed Enlil that it would be hidden. If ever he called for it, it would be brought forth. The reason it would be hidden was because it would work on Nuberians as well as the black-headed ones. It was extremely dangerous, something to be used only as a last resort. No one could be trusted with it. In fact, I pointed out it could be even used on Enlil himself. So why didn't you use it on Enlil? Max interrupted. I mean, you could have. It would have saved everyone a lot of trouble. Anki drew close to Max and said in a shaking voice, Because, Max, that would have been evil. It would have been an offense against the Dreamtime, 
against the very oneness of all things. Do you not remember our discussion on the difference between good and evil? One should never seek to own the will of another, for any reason at all. There is never, never, ever a reason good enough. Enki paused to let this sink in, and then continued. Enlil was reluctant to allow me to hide it at first, but the fear of someone actually using the pendant to remove his own free will got the better of him, and thankfully, in the end, he agreed to my plan. So, the pendant was hidden here on Earth, perfectly hidden, as I could take no chance whatsoever of it falling into the wrong hands. And here the pendant has stayed, from that day to this. Surprisingly, Enlil never called for it. Just knowing it was there finally seemed to be enough to let him sleep at night. But Enlil did tell Jadith about the pendant before his death. She knew it was hidden here on Earth in antiquity. Now you have my tale, and the tale of the pendant and that of the beginnings of your world. Since that time, humans prospered across the face of the Earth. They built their own great civilizations. What had begun as a race of primitive slaves bred for our purposes has become a proud, sentient race with a destiny separate from our own. Now you know why humans today have much Nuberian blood in them, and why Jadith finds humans so distasteful, and why she thinks of them as slaves and will return them to slavery if she can. And finally, now you truly know what kind of danger the Earth is in. For a long moment they were all silent. Max had no idea what to say. For several minutes, all he could do was wonder how in the world he had become involved in something like this. Well, come with me. I think it is high time you four had a well-deserved rest. Max could feel his eyes becoming heavy even as Enki said this, as though it had been a command to sleep. The others looked ready to fall asleep where they sat. Max could barely remember Enki leading them through a door in the wall down a flight of stairs and into a room with many beds in it. He might have even fallen asleep before reaching one of the beds. You're listening to The Pocket and the Pendant by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael and Evo's Dragon Page and Podiobooks.com. The full book is available in Podiobook format at Podiobooks.com. The full print version is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Lulu.com, or from the book's website and blog at www.pocketandpendant.com. 